As I stand before you this morning and look over the audience, I know that there are many who feel especially blessed and happy today that their health, though, has been somewhat poor recently, are able to be back with us. And all of us who continue to enjoy good health, we're also very thankful to be able to gather today. As we continue to think about the others who have been mentioned previously, those on our prayer list, those with other hindrances, those that are providentially unable to be with us today, Perhaps in the very near future, they too shall have an improvement in their health and be able to be again have the enjoyment of being able to gather to worship the God of heaven. As we have prayed this morning and as we have lifted our voices in song, we already have been encouraged and edified so majestically. And might I ask that we turn our attention with those thoughts in mind to another lesson that deals with the Holy Spirit. The eighth installment in this series of lessons concerning the Holy Spirit, and I might also mention this is the eighth and final of the lessons of that series. We have looked at a number of aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit. To briefly summarize some of those things that we have together seen, we first of all came to appreciate thoroughly and powerfully that the Holy Spirit is a divine being, a divine person, not a force, not an emotion, not an influence, he is a person, and especially as we looked at the work into which he has engaged himself, it had to do at least on two accounts with creation and revelation, and how wonderful for you and for me to see the great work of the revelation of the great mind and will and desire of heaven, perhaps vouchsafed in those words of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 13, "...who knoweth the mind of God, save the Spirit of God." And he, in knowing the mind of God, has revealed those things to us. And forever and eternally thankful for that we should be. Having those things asserted, though, and learned a bit about them, we also turned our attention to see about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, referenced twice in the Holy Scriptures. And with that, we looked at the gift of the Holy Spirit in the third lesson of the series. But then that led us directly to the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Lesson 4. And in that way, we learned so much that was relegated, and wonderfully so, to that New Testament first century era when miracles were still possible. With our discussion of the spiritual gifts, we then did note the indwelling of the Spirit and learned the interesting way that that takes place today, very different than what many in our world seem to think. After the indwelling lesson, we looked at the Holy Spirit in the church. We learned about the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5. We furthermore saw the role the Spirit plays in our prayer lives, as per Romans 8, verses 25 and 26. Following that lesson, we then appreciated two sins against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the despite unto the Holy Spirit. And we learned the eternal sin that relates to the former, the character of what that was, the description of that day. We also saw how that today you and I can do despite unto the Holy Spirit and be, in fact, if we don't repent of that, forever lost in His sight. Finally, we saw last Lord's Day, both the restraint and the constraint associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us today to a lesson in which the subject will involve fire. Fire, F-I-R-E. And so without any further delay to that point, could I ask that we take an interesting journey, a look if you please, and look at some of the things that are related in the Scriptures to the subject of fire as it relates to the Holy Spirit. And there is one text in particular that will captivate our attention. 
It's the one that Brother Joey read just a few moments ago from the third chapter of Matthew. If you have not revisited that, I'd ask you to turn with me and let's start our lesson this morning by looking at fire in the Bible. To discuss fire as it relates to the Bible is not an arbitrary discussion. In fact, as we saw here, John the Baptist especially in his preaching in the Judean era of the first century, made the direct observation as he spoke to some gathered on that occasion that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Clearly, he made mention of a baptism. And there were two especial matters related to it, the Holy Spirit on the one hand, fire on the other. And ever since the time of that writing, there has been no small amount of difficulty and no small amount of misunderstanding relative to what John was saying. It would be my hope this morning that we can unravel that and in fact ask, what is this baptism of fire to which John referred and what relation does it bear to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is the observation of those two that will, in fact, consume most of our discussion time this morning. A few questions obviously come to mind. First, how many baptisms does John mention? Is there only one, but it has two manifestations, one with fire, one with the Holy Spirit? Or are there, in fact, two distinct and separate baptisms under discussion? Furthermore, if there are two, in what way are they related? Perhaps one can ask, who are the recipients of these baptisms? Who will be baptized with fire? We ought not leave this building this morning without a firm understanding of who those people either are or were. As we look at all of those questions, the baptism of fire, it would be my hope that as we study and learn a bit about that this morning, that we will let the Bible be our guide to understand the thoroughness and the correctness of the truth on both of these subjects. Fire is frequently mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. Considering both Old and New Testament, it's mentioned 549 times in the King James translation of the Bible, indicating directly that this is a subject of oft importance. Needless to say, the word fire sometimes has to do with a literal occurrence of something that's burning. But on many occasions, it was used in a symbolic fashion to represent or symbolize something. Could I ask you to notice three especially frequent representations of fire? First of all, fire on no few number of occasions was representative of the presence, the majesty, and the power of God. In Exodus, the third chapter, we well remember that that meek man named Moses stood before a bush that was in fact burning but was not consumed. And God communicated and conversed with Moses through that bush. Here that fire was representative of the great power of presence and the wonderful glory of God. Ten chapters later in Exodus 13, might we remember that the children of Israel were in fact directed by day by a pillar of cloud, but by night by a pillar of fire. Fire again helped them appreciate that they had a powerful presence of a protective force with them. God watching over them, guiding them, leading them, directing them to that wonderful land of Canaan. Again, the fire indicative of the very presence of the great and majestic God of heaven. But those are only two of the things that might quickly be noted because also fire 
on many occasions was representative of the process of purification. That is to purify something. And even today, we are still aware that that same idea is true. If one, for instance, digs up some gold in a mine here on earth, how does one separate the pure gold from the various impurities and other metals of lesser value that might also be encumbered with it? It's accomplished by great heat and fire, and that concept is used many times in the Scriptures. In Zechariah 13.9, for example, notice what God said through the prophet Zechariah. He said, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Notice with me that God made statement that these people of Zechariah's day were such that they and those that would be of their lineage in the future, by spiritual matters, would be able to call upon God as their father, and they would be refined in the same way that gold and silver are refined in fire. They were described as being those purified by a process. Might we note the New Testament also uses a very similar kind of description. I've drawn two of those to your attention. One in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There, the Apostle Paul, in writing to that church in Corinth, exactly said to them that the things shall be tried in fire, for the fire shall reveal it. Notice that inasmuch as that discussion led them to see this, their works, their actions, their things in life would be tried by fire, and the fire would reveal or prove what it was that was worthy of preservation. Later in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, the inspired apostle Peter joining in that chorus made reference to the fact that one's faith is tried by fire. All of that being said, is it not easy to appreciate then that fire can be understood quite often as something indicative of a trial, a means of testing, and only that which passes the test meets the requirement of God. Might we ever appreciate then today that our faith is something that we all are going to encounter those times in life that will test us. Things are going to happen by virtue of many times Satan himself bringing matters, afflictions, oppressions, and trials. That's when our faith needs under the aspect of that trial to endure and to conquer and to be able to allow us to shine forth and pass through those times of trial and those times of affliction. The interesting character of that verse, the character of the trial of our faith, Peter said it's much, much more precious than that of gold. Perhaps we can see one final thing, though, about this aspect of fire. Not only representative of God's presence and power, not only representative of the character of trial and purification, on many occasions it's also related to destruction. Destruction. I believe that likely would have been one of the first things that we would have guessed. After all, when a structure or some other entity catches on fire, often it is destroyed. It is, in fact, consumed and burned up. And so, too, in the Bible, 
Fire not only is reference to a physical burning up, but sometimes is a means of destruction of other things that can have a spiritual relationship. I again have listed some verses for your consideration. First of all, what about the universe itself? In 2 Peter 3, verse number 10, there Peter in rather majestic language says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now in verses that were just prior to that, Peter had made note that God on one hand destroyed the olden world with water, but the future one is reserved to be destroyed by fire. And here's the elaborate description. Consider then another passage that also relates somewhat to that one. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse number 7, the inspired apostle, drawing one's attention so very carefully, said, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire. Our Savior is going to return someday. And when He does, in company with the angels, we notice that it shall be accompanied by fire. And what's the purpose? Note the next verse. Those who have not obeyed the gospel, those who in fact have turned a blind eye to the commandments of the Lord, will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Isn't it interesting to see the association of fire on the one hand and destruction on the other? In appreciation of the destructiveness of fire, might we note the eternal scope then set forth by that idea in Matthew 25. Jesus, in fact, was the one speaking here. As he gave that picturesque description of the day of judgment, he said there'll be two classes, those on the left and those on the right, and as the Lord addressed each one of those classes, he noted especially in verses 41 to 46 about those who are on the left, who in fact will be cast into everlasting, eternal destruction. And he also used the word fire in description of that which they would experience. As we contemplate then that usage of the word fire, I might bring us back then to that text in Matthew 3. What was John referring to when he said, You will be baptized in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and with fire? Perhaps the next slide will lead us more firmly to appreciate that there's an interesting aspect of that middle verse, verse 11. The mention of baptism. John again made mention of a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. And we raise the question, are there two baptisms in description there, or is there only one? To settle our mind with respect to that point, might I quickly direct us to the fact there are six different baptisms mentioned in the Holy Scriptures, six of them that are referenced in the New Testament. We would do well to appreciate the place of each one and what the Bible does help us to quickly see about it. In fact, looking at that listing, the first one I would ask you to notice is actually found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. As Paul made his writing to that church in Corinth, he very interestingly asserted that those Israelites, the Hebrews of Old Testament lore, were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And note the word baptized is there employed. 
Thus, one can find here a baptism that's referenced, but it actually occurred in the Old Testament era as the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea with the waters parted. That was a description related to the providence of God toward those people and their submission to His command to cross that river, to cross that sea, with that water parted in that fashion. It was, in fact, descriptive of their obedience to God's command on that occasion, wasn't it? With regard to that baptism, one could, of course, quickly note that baptism is not applicable today. The Israelites lived thousands of years ago, and so today no one would anticipate being baptized in the same way that they were in, exact, in exactly that fashion. But let's look at another baptism also referenced in the New Testament. There's the baptism administered by John the Baptist. After all, we read in Matthew and Mark as well as Luke and also references in John that John the Baptist immersed people. He baptized them. In John 3.23 it says he baptized near Enon because there was much water there. In fact, even Jesus, the Son of God, came to John to be baptized of him. Matthew 3 verses 15 to 23. The observation then about John's baptism has also been a source of some concern for some today. Is it still possible to be baptized with the baptism of John? Well, clearly the answer is no, for John was the administrator of it, and John is not alive anymore. In Matthew 14, he was beheaded because he had the firmness of character to reprimand a king because he was living in adultery. He was living in fornication. John's baptism did not have all the promises with it that the Lord's baptism does. Even though his baptism was unto remission of sins, there was no promise of the Holy Spirit with John's baptism. In Acts 19, verses 1 and following, we find there that in Ephesus, Paul encountered 12 men who had been baptized with John's baptism. However, we notice that they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. That was a shortcoming of that baptism. And it was one thus that with the passing of years, that baptism is no longer an appropriate and a thing that's commanded by the God of heaven today. Because wasn't it true that John said, I must decrease and he must increase, John 3, verses 30 and following. He spoke about one after him who was mightier than he, in fact, so mighty that John wasn't worthy, he felt to stoop down and unloose the latchet on his shoes. It is to be noted then that there was a better baptism to follow, a greater one in the sense of its promises and in the sense of who its administrator was to be. Before we look at that one though, there's another that I thought would be worthy to consider. In Mark the 10th chapter we read about the baptism of suffering. This baptism again in which James and John came to Jesus and made a petition of him to in fact occupy a position of greatness in the kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. And in fact to them he said, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, yes we can. And Jesus said, indeed you will be baptized with the baptism of suffering. And there we have the reference Jesus was speaking of the great suffering that those first century individuals would endure for his cause and for his honor and to be disciples of his. More than once as we studied the Revelation, we noticed the extreme persecution 
that was heaped upon those of the first century because they were disciples of God. They often were put to death. In lesser instances, they were imprisoned or other bodily things done to them. Notice that was described as an overwhelming flood of affliction and persecution. Today, you and I may well suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. And according to 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, we shall. However, usually we aren't called upon to give our life for His cause. Who knows but what someday we may be called upon to do that. But might we notice that baptism of suffering is not a critical element in terms of some of the later passages that we read in the New Testament. For example, what about the fourth one? The baptism I've listed in water for the remission of sins. Now that baptism is distinct from these previous three. Notice that this one is the one that those apostles preached faithfully and one that they asserted was a necessary ingredient in the, in the plan of salvation. On the day of Pentecost, Peter heralded it loud and clear, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. As we have asked the question before, may we do so again. Is that baptism still a pertinent and necessary one? And absolutely it is. And thus, when Paul made the statement that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, in Ephesians 4 verse 5, this is the baptism to which he referred. Thus, in terms of salvation, and in terms of procuring the blessing of God for the remission of sins, this is the baptism that our Lord proclaimed. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16 verse 16. Now, we've no noted then that John's baptism is not the one of Ephesians 4 verse 5. This baptism of suffering is not the one, and neither is the one of the Israelites in 1 Corinthians 10 verse number 2. That's four out of the six of them, isn't it? And only two are left. One of them is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the other is the baptism of fire. It is a fortunate circumstance that we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit earlier in this series of lessons. In fact, that was back in lesson number four, wasn't it? As we look then at the aspects and the details of it, all that we shall do is somewhat make a quick rehearsal or remembrance of some of those things and focus our efforts on the baptism of fire. First of all, let's place the setting of Matthew chapter 3. As we do that, we shall find ourselves in a position to better understand and to better comprehend what it was that was asked of John and also what his answer was. John was having great success in his preaching. In fact, in verses 5 and 6, we learn that many in Judea and in the area of Jerusalem came to John near the Jordan to be baptized of him. In fact, the word that's used in the King James Version is all of the region. Folks from a huge areas were coming to John to hear him speak and in fact to be baptized of him. As, as was often the case, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees also came. But John had a very special message for them. If you'd like to especially notice verses 7 and 8, John plainly told them that you need to bring forth fruits worthy or meat for repentance. The act then of obeying the Savior, even in that day, is such that it was not merely an empty act. One's life needed to reflect the trust 
and the belief that one had for the proclamations of the truth. One couldn't just mouth the words, well, I believe, and go on living the same old sinful lifestyle and expect to accept or to have the favor of God. Luke gives us a greater appreciation for exactly what John said. They were to, in fact, not treat others disadvantagedly by taking more from them than what they should. That's only one example of what John said would in, when he accompany their acts of repentance. But upon noting the necessity of that repentance, John then proceeded to specify, what if they didn't? And what about those who did not have a heart of trust in God? I put that in these words. John very clearly spoke about destruction that would come their way. I'd like you to notice verse number 9 again. Matthew chapter 3, verse number 9. Again, after immediately affirming the necessity of repentance, John said, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. John thus said, listen to me now, I'm telling you, every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down, destroyed by being cast into the fire. Thus John drives home the point of the necessity of relinquishing one's spirit, giving control to one's life in obedience to the things of God. After having made that point, Notice again how that fire is used by John as indicative of the destruction that awaits those who have not rendered obedience to him. It is in that very context that John then makes reference to, to these things in verse 11. I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. It's in this very context that we now have the mention of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. Let's again make some brief comments about the former and then focus more clearly upon the latter. We are not left much to wonder about what the reference is in terms of the Holy Spirit's baptism. For Jesus exactly quotes this passage later in His ministry and identifies for us what is under discussion. If you'd like to make note in your Bible or perhaps in another way of where that reference is, Jesus quotes that passage verbatim in Acts 1 verse 5. And on that occasion, this is the statement that Jesus made. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. As thus Jesus quoted that passage, he applied it to the apostles, and he affirmed that not many days thereafter from the text of Acts 1 verse 5, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We studied again back in lesson 4 that that great event happened on the day of Pentecost because in Acts 2 beginning in verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
That word they refers to the apostles. And on that occasion, being inundated or overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, they had the ability to thus preach that first gospel sermon. And thankfully on that day, the birthday of the church, we find about 3,000 gladly received the word and were baptized. Acts 2 verse 41. That kind of observation helps us again to recall that there is a brief reference to something like this in Acts chapter 10. Whereas the Jews are the recipients of those blessings on Acts chapter 2, the Gentiles join them in Acts chapter 10. And as God made note of that approval, we can appreciate so wonderfully how that the church then was open to all individuals. It wasn't just reserved for a certain few by virtue of birth. It was reserved for all who would respond to the gospel call of invitation and to turn their life over in obedience to, to the very God of heaven. The promise, in fact, that we see set forth in Joel chapter 2 is exactly the one that we have just read about and seen in the text before us. And so it is, I thought at this point, to very briefly ask you to, to remember it with me. In Joel chapter 2 verse 28, it was there said that the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh, all flesh, both Jew and Gentile. In Acts chapter 2, it was the Jews that received it, poured out upon them. In Acts chapter 10, poured out upon the Gentiles. And thus, when John used the word you here in Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, he was referring to the families of all classes of people. You and I, in a sense, are still the beautiful recipients of that blessing. For we too are those for which the Spirit has been provided by way of the nature of the New Testament for us. And how blessed we are to have His writings and to have the things of His Word to us. It is now that I think we're prepared to reach the latter point of our lesson this morning and look at what did John refer to then when he made reference to the baptism of fire. Again, there are many who today assert a variety of things about the baptism of fire. One of the things we can quickly see is there really were two baptisms under, under discussion. One was this baptism of the Holy Spirit, of which we've just now finished our discussion. This baptism of fire. Let's note the context first. I think that still is one of the clearest hints, clearest indicators of what John was saying. In verse number 10, John used the word fire and associated it with the, with the destruction that would be received by those who did not bring forth good fruits unto God. In verse number 12, again, John used the word fire. And on that occasion, it is tied to the following reality. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In verse 10, fire again related to destruction of those who did not bring forth fruits, the proper good fruits to God. In verse number 12, now the word fire is employed again with respect to destruction. This time it's with respect to the chaff. Those who have not devoted their life with determination to the character of spiritual service to God. In fact, didn't Jesus later utter a parable that explains that in marvelous detail? It's the parable of the tares of the field in Matthew 13. The enemy sowed the tares amongst the wheat, 
And as the parable drew to its close, what happened to the wheat and to the tares? The tares were gathered, bound, and burned. The wheat was gathered and put into the barn. Notice the same language, almost identical, appears here. The Lord is giving a very vivid description on that occasion, and John is echoing it here, about that day of judgment that awaits for those who are not the wheat, for those that are the chaff, those who have not obeyed the Master, those who have never rendered obedience to the gospel plan of salvation, those who have not lived faithfully into the call of the Master. That's what's under description. And John very powerfully made the point to the group of that day, didn't he? Unquenchable fire. May I submit to you in consideration of that that we should not pass too quickly the observation that who is the administrator of this? We saw earlier that John administered his baptism. We noticed, of course, that in verse number 11, John said, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John didn't say that he would do it. He said, He, which means the Lord, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That he did in Acts 2 and Acts 10. But it's also he that will baptize with fire. When we read John 5 verse 22, we will remember that all the judgment has been committed from the Father to the Son. And on that great and final day of judgment, when all shall stand before God and give an accounting for the deeds done in the body, notice that we shall stand before the judgment seat of Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 10. Might we thus say today that there are some who actively desire to be baptized in fire because they think that that's a necessary accompaniment to their service to God. Friend, I'd submit to you that's completely wrong. Those that are going to be baptized in fire are those that are eternally lost. Those that are recast into a devil's hell forevermore. Neither you nor I desire to be baptized with fire. For if that is our lot, we have failed miserably to live in the way that God would have us to do. The baptism of fire spoken of by John, referenced much later by Jesus, referenced by the apostles, is a baptism that again awaits the disobedient. It awaits those not prepared for the day of judgment. In the closing of the lesson this morning then, might I ask us to briefly notice something we've learned about this baptism of fire today. Fire symbolizes, first, the presence and majesty of God. It symbolizes the process of purification of our faith. And it symbolizes destruction. John's usage of the baptism of fire here in Matthew 3 hinges particularly upon the third usage. Fire in verse 10 and verse 12 referred to destruction, and I would submit it does so also in verse 11, to those who are not obedient under the New Testament commandments. Today, do not allow yourself to leave this building if you are currently to be in cataloged as those to receive the baptism of fire. Jesus paid the price by shedding his blood so that you would not have to endure that baptism. That one isn't described in Revelation in these words, isn't it? In Revelation, there is what's called the second death. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. This baptism of fire is in harmony with that. The second death, friend, you will die once if the Lord doesn't return prior to that occurrence. But you do not have to endure the second death. That's only reserved for those who have foolishly rejected 
the offer of God. This very day, the plan of salvation has been offered into you. It involves the following elements. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, for they are what in fact drove the Savior to the cross. Confess His wonderful name as the Savior, as in fact the only begotten Son of God, and then humbly and with submissiveness allow yourself to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that again, but you know the difference between right and wrong, and you know that Christ died for you and that you currently are in sin, that if you were to die today, the baptism of fire would be yours. Don't not allow that ha to happen. If we could be of assistance today in your confession, your baptism, we'd be happy to be of that assistance. But if you have become a child of God at some time, but you have not been faithful, you perhaps have done things that others know of that are not right. You have, in fact, brought reproach upon the church. Make that right today, just like Simon did in Acts 8. Let others pray for you and with you, and how honored we'd be to accomplish that with you today. If either of these things would be the need of your life, would you not with haste let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?